Hello, I'm Andy Ellis. I'm the host of this show and a Green Party candidate for governor of Maryland in 2026. I'm using this show to highlight the interesting people and ideas that help me to understand what is and what's possible. You can learn more about the campaign by going to gogreen2026.com. Our website is pretty simple at this point, but you can sign up for email, follow on social media, and find out a little bit about me and our plans for the campaign. Now, I want to say guests on this show do not necessarily support the campaign, the Green Party, etc. They've agreed to come on to discuss ideas and issues. Um, and so today our guest is Lawrence Grand Prix. Lawrence Grand Prix is the Director of Research for Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. His focuses include drug policy, criminal justice, police accountability, and community-based economic educational development. He's the co-author of The Black Book, and his work has been featured in The Guardian, The Baltimore Sun, Time Magazine, Black Agenda Report. He's also the co-host of the In Search of Black Power podcast. Welcome, Lawrence. How are you doing? Hey, how you doing, Andy? It's good to see you again. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you for coming on today. Um, let's get started. Can you describe the, the framework that you use at LBS to address policy questions and political challenges? That's a good question. Um, if I can, I'm going to start by briefly explaining what we don't do. And what we don't do is what a lot of people do. And this isn't judgment on this practice, but what a lot of people do is they kind of see what things are hot in the discourse. And they may be a social justice nonprofit, they may be a community organization, and they kind of see where their interests align, where um, some bill that's moving, something that's hot in the conversation, and some people will even uh, look for grants to hop on those advocacy campaigns. And, you know, Professor Derek Bell, the so-called father of critical race theory, might see that as an example of interest convergence, where you just kind of find some vehicle that's moving and you kind of attach your advocacy organization to it. That's important. The things pop up in the discourse because they're important. But we've made an intentional effort to do something different. We're not a nonprofit. We've made an intentional decision to not be a nonprofit. And that's allowed us to have a process that allows us to generate our own policy. So some people think, you know, you're running for office. They're the governor. They're elected. They should just, I should tell them the problem. They should figure out the solution. The question is, do you really want them to figure out the solution, right? Because what do you think a solution could be another problem? So what we do is we use our experience as researchers and policy debaters to come up with ideas. But honestly, most of the time, the ideas we come up with are not the ideas that we actually advocate for, because we have a substantial process of going into community, hearing community concerns, understanding the needs of people in our networks, and then we use our policy debate research and our research skills to figure out what political interventions will actually solve the needs of people in our community. These are often people that might do human social service work, these are folks who might do community economic development work, they usually have some sort of liberatory perspective or unique approach to how they do things, which might cause them to not be in the mainstream or cause them to be uniquely effective at what they do, but maybe don't have the time or because of the limitations of nonprofit status, don't have the ability to actually pursue the policy changes that would be necessary to expand their work or secure their work or expand their impact. So a lot of what we do is using the listening and the experience of doing research and policy debate to craft policies and kind of build our own vehicle and then use the connections we have to folks in the community to then make that vehicle move, which is again, different than what many other people do, which is see what vehicle is moving and then find the space on the moving train. 
And and you, you've worked in a lot of areas in that. And next week, we're going to talk about how that framework applies to crime, violence, and violence interruption. But this week, I want to really focus the discussion on uh, substance abuse, addiction, treatment, and recovery. And you've done a lot of work and a lot of scholarship to change the directions of the discourse around this in Maryland policy. Can you give us an overview of that work? And uh, can you give us an overview of that work? Yeah. I mean, I'll start by saying this work that I didn't come to naturally. Um, my father was an undercover narcotics cop for the Baltimore Police Department. Um, for part of his 20 years on the force. I grew up in the crack is whack era and addiction is a hard topic in the black community. You know, it's something that some people feel shame about. It's something that's not seen as a rigorous scientific issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's the emotional issue. People have been harmed by people suffering from substance use disorder in their family. But the more I did drug policy with cannabis work, or we worked on the part of the cannabis legalization bill that reinvested tax revenue from legal cannabis into communities impacted by the war on drugs. So I didn't care about doing drugs. I didn't care about addiction. I cared about the money. Um, but the more I talked about it, the more I heard people talk about it, though, the reality of fentanyl and the reality of overdose just made it so evident that that not only needs to be a response, it has to be a liberatory grassroots response to what's happening with addiction and overdose. Baltimore has one of the highest overdose fatality rates in the entire United States of America. In the moment, we have the highest overdose fatality rate in the history of the United States of America. And that's just unacceptable. Um, so given all that, we've sort of looked at the history of Black folks' intervention into addiction, studying things like, for example, um, pre-slavery use of cannabis in Africa um, and African-American community interventions into addiction you know, outside of the traditional medical model, folks like uh, Matula Shakur in the work with the Black Panthers and the Young Lords taking over a wing of a hospital in New York to do uh, a treatment in Lincoln Detox using acupuncture as a tool for opioid detox for uh, Vietnam veterans, but also challenging the methadone establishment because in their minds, they're revolutionaries. They didn't want the government to control their supply. you know. So they were challenging not just the uh, orthodoxy of um, addiction treatment, but also challenging the medical establishment and the medicalization of addiction treatment. So this kind of led us to thinking addiction holistically as a response to economic deprivation, but also as a response to specifically racialized historical trauma in the Black community. And so because of that, the responses we're going to need to have to the overdose epidemic in the Black community might be a little bit different than the so-called best practices and some of the things that are being funded in different parts of the country. Um, so that kind of leads us to some of the work that I would have been doing around uh, reframing things like drug decriminalization and the harms of drug criminalization away from just an individual person getting locked up for like, you know, um, mandatory minimums for, for crack possession, but seeing as a systemic attack on, attack on communities and an extension of a larger desire for community social control. And sort of that leads us to rethinking some drug policy orthodoxy, some addiction policy orthodoxy, and just complex, uh, in difficult spaces to see as black and white. It's a very gray area that isn't really a cathartic, this is the solution. But it's necessary for us to have the conversation about the the uh, basket, the assemblage of solutions we're going to need to address this problem. Excellent. And so let's, uh, let's talk about this report that you worked on, the communal impact of drug criminalization in Maryland. 
Um, and um, can you talk a little bit just about the, the background of that report before we get into the, the arguments and the findings? Yeah. Um, Open Society Foundation came to us seeing um, wanting to basically begin to, con- to push in Annapolis some policy around decriminalizing the possession of opioids. The theory is that people get locked up for opioid possession. They're really just people suffering from addiction. It should be a public health problem in jail. Um, you know, many people lose access to services, lose access to employment. They come out more susceptible to overdose. The stress of incarceration impacts their ability to have the tolerance of certain normal doses of drugs. It's just really bad. And they wanted to push a policy decriminalizing uh, opioids. And we said, we don't want to join that coalition right now for everything I just said at the beginning, because we were pushing cannabis decriminalization, uh, legalization in the reparations perspective, but also because we hadn't researched the issue. And But they came back and said, well, can we... Uh, we want to fund some research on the issue um and we're going to give you know someone had a connection to osf and they wanted to bring us in as a consultant so we came in and consulted the two-year process interviewing folks in community um and you know uh part of what i came to the conclusion was i'm glad i didn't join the decrim coalition because I, I i wouldn't have been pushing the issue the way they wanted us to at the time um so what we found was a drug uh criminalization was really seen as a community um impacting uh process because when you're locking up 20 percent of some communities in baltimore where we're in jail some 20 percent of the male population largely around cannabis and drug charges in the 90s and that impacts the entire community impacts housing it impacts nonprofits, it impacts churches and institutional damage is done through that mass incarceration so you need to think of decriminalization as first of all decriminalizing being black So you can't just decriminalize drugs because if it's about racialized social control, they'll just find new vectors of social control. So things like traffic stops go up when you decriminalize cannabis, for example. So you have like a net widening effect where cops find other reasons to pull you over. If you're in chaotic addiction, you're on the streets, you're loitering, you're doing public urination. There are anti-homelessness laws. There's all these other reasons for cops to mess with you. They're not impacted by decrim. Well, decrim will be short for opioid decriminalization uh, for for, for this purpose. And just the mainstream drug policy community wasn't thinking about that. They were not serious about community reinvestment. In fact, what they were saying was this will be a cost-saving bill because cops are wasting money policing um, low-level drug crimes. Mm-hmm. And we were like, and they were like, well, if they don't police the drug crimes, they'll save the money, and we can reinvest that saved money in community. And at this point, I have to laugh because it's like you don't know how budgets work. <laughs> Once the cops have it, they're not going to be like. <laughs> here it is we didn't use it you get to have it back now that's not right. how this ever works <laughs> they're, they're just going to use it for other policing right um, yeah i mean brief story my father told me that they would give him walking around money for like pay ci's confidential informants and they would say to him look there's only one rule do not bring this money back i don't care if you spend it on dinner i don't care if you sow it in the lake because we're going to ask for more money next year and we cannot ask for more money that next year if we don't spend all that money this year that's the reality of how cops work. So there ain't no way in the world decriminalizing drugs means they're going to save money that comes back to the community. Ain't no yeah. way decrim can do what a national movement to defund the police could not do, which mm-hmm. is redirect the tax money from the police to the community. There's so no like, back. The, there's no back door to taking the money away from the police. You're not going to sneakily do it and have them not notice, right? Yeah. Like, and, and the last thing I'll say, you know, the report is comprehensive. We interviewed a dozen people. There's lots of good stuff in there. But I wanted to make it a report to say, drug policy people, you have to do stuff differently. 
because the way you're framing the argument, we the community can't trust it because it doesn't sound right. It doesn't reflect our experiences. But I understand why they do it. They, they do it because they only know one way to pass bills, which is we need to have a moderate, technocratic, evidence-based, expert-led movement where we can basically get the moderates on both sides to just agree to incremental reforms. So they have all this well-sounding rhetoric designed to get in the papers. And, you know, the one thing they said was, what's the number? And like, what do you yep. mean, what's the number? It's like, how much money are we wasting policing low-level police? I'm like, why do you care? Because that's the money we're going to save when we do decrim. It's like, no, you're not. <laughs> but they're obsessed with that number because that number appeals to fiscal moderates. It appeals to uh, good governance technocrats because, like, it's wasteful spending. And it's like, it's not wasteful spending. It's an investment in social control. And frankly, right. it's an investment in property values because they don't want people suffering from chaotic addiction impacting high-value real estate. So they're just fundamental assumptions on drug policy that have to be challenged, but they're deeply embedded in a space that felt that feels under attack constantly, and their default is always tacked to the center or tacked to some sort of technocratic, uh, logical middle ground. And it's like, no, you really have to go into the people who are impacted by drugs who don't agree with you, who have been impacted by the crack epidemic in the 90s and say, well, drug liberalization, if not liberatory for us, more drugs means more chaos in our communities. So you have to sell us on the value of this policy beyond some libertarian notion of personal freedom or just people getting locked up. We know people getting locked up. They don't get locked up for other stuff, even if we decriminalize drugs. So you really got to sell us because and, and those folks take that as they're conservative. They don't get it. They're ignorant. They're the enemy. And that has to stop. You know, that has to stop. I think that's a great overview, and we'll get we'll get back into each of these points in a little bit more depth as we go through this. Um, but um, in the report, you argue, uh, and, and I'm quoting here. Um, I have some underlining on it, but the result of, of the report, the result of the report, we hope, is the beginning of redefining how advocates and researchers understand the harms of drug decriminalization or drug criminal. Instead of a story of individuals being harmed by bad policy, drug criminalization should instead be seen as communities being harmed by a system of white supremacy that produces anti-black policy, of which drug criminalization is just one example. I think this quote is really good. And I, I you know, I went through it and marked probably like 25 different quotes that I could have pulled out, but I thought that this one really highlights well. Um, where I want to jump off. So can you talk more about the communal harms of drug criminalization versus the individual harms in the current paradigm? Yeah, I mean, I already started talking about it because it, at this point it's my reflex because it is so easy in our individualistic American society to say black folks got locked up for what white folks were not locked up for. So as an individual, we should say, we're sorry, we should expunge the record, we should maybe pay them some money. But that wouldn't do anything to repair the damage to the community. So, you know, you can look at the theory of the uh, Black Panthers that saw drug war in the context of the hollowing out of the industrial core of the cities, really as soon as they became majority Black. So as soon as the cities become majority Black in the 70s, you see a massive disinvestment from these communities. Part of that is the machinations of global capitalism, the factories leaving. But it's also an intentional effort by the feds to not invest in Black cities because they had Black mayors. They didn't trust them with the money. 
they thought they were just going to use it to build up their own political machines or waste it. And, and that's just a deep anxiety about Black communal sovereignty and communal capacity, in part because they thought those communities could produce revolutionaries. Um, and they were very adamant, if we're going to give you money, you're not going to use it to fund revolutionaries, thus the nonprofit industrial complex. So seeing the war on drugs as an extension you know, of a larger trajectory of community control is important because some of the solutions people are presenting to the impact of the war on drugs are just kind of the flip side of that same identity. So when you say we'll invest in your communities but only evidence-based, empirically proven nonprofits with track records and audited financial statements, you're saying the same thing you said in the 70s when you brought the war on drugs. We don't trust you with resources. We don't deserve community capacity. You're starving out those community institutions that were already harmed by the chaos of the war on drugs by saying you can only get money if you agree to follow an organizational playbook given to you by someone else. And that's something we're literally seeing on the ground with both addiction and violence prevention services, which we'll get to in a future conversation. So that community concept was so important because it's basically just skating to where the puck is going. Because we're at the moment where it's very clear that there isn't an appetite to lock up people for low-level drug crimes, but it doesn't mean there's an appetite to repair the harm. And it doesn't mean people have any vision of what repair looks like. So we want to make it exceedingly clear that repair looks like reinvesting in the sovereignty and autonomy of these communities to solve their own problems. And that's different than just giving money for grants, right? And grants in many ways reproduce a form of dependency and reliance and, and sort of making communities dependent upon other people that is the very impact of the war on drugs is supposed to be addressing. So it was basically framing it as that's the harm to indict the ways in which people are basically trying to use our suffering to create a new industry to service that suffering with these services and nonprofits and to make sure well-meaning people who are engaged in this issue in good faith, because not everyone is, have some ammunition to say that's not that's not reparations. Yes, and and I want to get to the to the repair part in a second. But we often hear the story about how a person was locked up for low level drug crimes and it ruined their life, et cetera, et cetera. And that's true, and we need to understand that. Um, but you really do work in this report to talk about the way that neighborhoods and communities were targeted and destroyed by uh, by the war on drugs. What does that look like in Baltimore? What are what are the direct impacts? What are some of the numbers and trajectories that we've seen here to understand that communal impact of the war on drugs? Yeah, so if you look at a neighborhood like Santan, Winchester, and again, the, the, all this stuff challenges orthodoxy. So Santan, Winchester was of course the epicenter of the Baltimore uprising, Gilmore Homes, West Baltimore, Pennsylvania Avenue, Freddie Gray. But it was also the epicenter of a multi-million dollar federal investment in the early 90s. So Clinton made it one of the premier empowerment zones. They wanted to make it a showcase. But part of what they did was they brought in a bunch of money for policing to quote unquote protect their investment. So we see arrest in that community skyrocket around that time, a little bit before the investment, a little bit after. And like I say, you're hollowing out that community. So these folks are not just people on drugs. They may be selling drugs, but they're also paying rent. They're taking people to school. They're buying pampers. So this, the stores begin to close. 
you see more evictions and you see more vacant housing because the literal human stock that products of that community is hollowed out. You have to think of it in terms of part of the secret of this series, assume black people are human beings, assume poor black people are human beings and project into the future all the institutions and all of the community infrastructure that would have been created if those people had been in the community. So if you assume these folks are pathological and they can only destroy community, this argument doesn't make sense. But if you assume these folks are human beings and are part of a larger fabric that's feeding into uh, sports leagues and churches and corner stores in the community, you can look at all the institutional infrastructure that never got a chance to be created. And then you begin to understand why these communities have disparate long-term outcomes. So, so the reality of the hyper-incarceration in these communities makes it so that they don't have the community infrastructure to produce anything in their community that could give folks an alternative to the street life. Mm-hmm. So high crime communities are high crime communities, not despite arrests, but because of arrests, because mm-hmm. of the mass incarceration. And that's because of the impact they have hollowing out community institutions that would then create alternatives to um, criminogenic behavior. Um, you know, folks like Todd Clear, formerly at Rutgers professor, uh, makes this argument. He calls it coercive mobility. Um, I don't think we need Eurocentric theorists to justify what's a very intuitive, logical argument, but there is some empirical validation for this claim. He looks at communities in Tallahassee, Florida, where if you literally project same community, it's literally the incarceration rate that's the only variable that determines future incarceration rates. Right, so same poverty, same war on drugs, but the hyper-incarceration targeted in particular communities. We didn't have a war on drugs. We had a targeted hyper-focus on locking up Black folks in particular communities. We didn't have mass incarceration. We had targeted hyper-incarceration. So seeing the war on drugs as targeted hyper-incarceration changes how you view the the story of these communities and what you need to do to solve that problem. And, and, And so you get this trajectory from deindustrialization, black power movement, civil or civil rights, deindustrialization, black power movement, war on drugs. And what you're saying, what I hear you saying is the war on drugs is a targeted approach to take out the power of black communities, which were starting at that time to emerge as politically independent forces. Is, is, that, is that part of the argument that you're making there? I think that's an essential part of the argument that usually gets left out. Obviously, I think that the the big thing is the hyper-incarceration, but why does it come about? It comes mm-hmm. out of this larger trajectory of anxieties around Black revolutionaries, anxieties around um, Black men, and, you know, desire to have some social control over them. Um, but yeah, the numbers of, uh, I mean, there were uh, folks studying incarceration in the 80s saying, man, we never projected incarceration to get this bad, but at, at least it can't get any worse. And then the 90s happened. <laughs> and, you know, the 90s were really driven by criminalization of cannabis as a critical vector for um, incarceration. And even seeing, um, you know, um, like the crime decline of the 90s and 2000s as the Black community choosing to, to build itself up in terms of its civil society and, you know, the whole crack is whack movement, in some ways is top down you know, George Bush, BS, whatever, but it's also to some extent organic within mm-hmm. the black churches and black CDCs. And when people say we don't know what caused the great crime decline of the 90s and 2000s, the great murder decline, many people say, well, you can just look at black people choosing 
to change the culture of their communities to say this is unacceptable. And even the shift from crack to cannabis, things like shifting from uh, cocaine rap to the chronic, Dr. Dre's The Chronic, like that would take the cultural shift away from selling cocaine to selling cannabis. Mm-hmm. And part of that was cannabis was seen as less likely to generate violence. Um, and, and even that becomes criminalized within this context of hyper-incarceration. So mm-hmm. it's being the interplay of Black community agency and a police state designed to quash that agency becomes a necessary political framework to frame policy to repair the problem. Because you got to know what the problem actually is. The problem is the anxiety of America around Black community agency. Right. And I think there's a place in the report uh, that you either say or one of the interviewees says, like, we need to make it, uh, basically, I'm paraphrasing, we need to make it not a crime to be Black in America if we want decriminalization's efforts to decrease the police interactions with Black communities. Yeah, you have to decriminalize Blackness, but decriminalizing drugs didn't mean anything. Um, and again, that's a thing that's kind of like a tweetable phrase. It's kind of like a pithy phrase. But what I'm really talking about is Black community sovereignty, Black institutional mm-hmm. sovereignty, not just me as a Black person being affirmed and getting to not be arrested. Like we have to decriminalize black civic life and the black institutions that I created, we have to let them cook essentially. You have to let them flourish and be resourced to do what every other community does. Um, and that's difficult because um, again, even anti-austerity progressives will say, well, we need to make sure none of the money is wasted. We need to make sure that we protect the policy by having the most stringent focus on anti-corruption and wasting money. And obviously sometimes money gets wasted and you do what you can to have accountability. But the reality is people need space to experiment. They need space to explore, they need space to fail. And that's the distinction between reparations and just funding. So like when you're just funding stuff, like maybe some of this stuff makes more sense. If you care about reparations, if you care about repairing the civic fabric and community autonomy, you have to give them local control to figure out what they want to do with the money. And that was a big part of the reparations policy we passed. And that frankly needs to be more of a, uh, a conversation in addiction spaces. Because a big part of addiction is hopelessness. There's no reason to live in society that's more fun than being high. And that isn't just a question of poverty. It's a question of autonomy and feeling mm-hmm. like you have no control over your life. Mm-hmm. So the idea of community self-determination, I think it's really integral understanding that it's when you feel powerless that's an addictionogenic condition and that you can have powerlessness through austerity just like you have powerlessness through feeling like the white nonprofit the foundations that control your community are making you play a dance and playing just pulling the strings that keep you from getting the resources you need let's let's um, talk more about that about that nonprofit point for a second another point that you and the interviewees make uh, in this in this paper is that the current policy approach to substance use and addiction is driven by universities nonprofits and philanthropy sector that seeks to go profit by controlling black communities and they are doing their experimentation with their evidence-based things but that they are controlling the ability to own the space and to design the experimentation talk more about the the nexus of nonprofits, universities, and philanthropy in this sector. Yeah, this is a um, very important, I think, under-discussed um, topic. I think it's discussed in generalities and not in terms of specificity. So I'll try to be like specific. Um, so, for example, you have approaches to addiction that have a more spiritual uh, theory 
of what it means to repair someone as a theory of addiction, uh, addiction treatment. Some people link this only to 12 step and only to the most regressive versions of 12 step, which can be very confrontational, which can be very overtly religious to the point of being, you know, hostile to any questioning of religion. You cannot legally be mandated to go to 12 step in this country because it is like Jesus religious violation church of state. Um, so they say all that stuff is bad. Really, you know, they won't say in public, like only stupid people do that. We need the real hard science, the evidence-based stuff, and that's methadone and suboxone. Now, methadone is coming for a lot of criticism because in America, it is essentially oftentimes a profit-based system that gets to get reimbursed through Medicaid. Um, but the idea is that, you know, it's a public health problem. You just need to replace the chemical with a new chemical. And the community's experience of methadone is mixed, but it's important to understand that it is not the community's experience that the chemical is at the core of the problem. The core of the problem is what drives people to relate to the chemical that way, which is the trauma and hopelessness and merely giving people a legal chemical replacement in terms of the methadone molecule does not address the larger conditions of hopelessness that lead to people to suffer from chaotic addiction in the first place. Um, and similarly with Suboxone, like Suboxone, you know, people have done studies on this. It was really targeted to white people to be the anti-methadone. It comes from a doctor. It's re reimbursed by insurance. So it was basically targeted to deal with the white opioid epidemic with more stable middle-class white folks. And so Suboxone has on paper fantastic results, but it's dealing with a demographic that has far more resources to deal with the problem. So now they're bringing Suboxone to poor working class black folks suffering from chaotic addiction. And they're like, this stuff isn't working. And they're like, you're lying because the data says it works. And it's like the data is skewed to a middle-class insured white demographic that was Suboxone's target audience. So this obsession with evidence-based obscures the larger history of liberatory practice and addiction in the black community. When you talk about people like Matula Shakur, Matula Shakur is a New York Black Panther. And when he recently passed away, he was a political prisoner for over 40 years. And in conversations about his legacy, what he said, what they said was it was the politicization and the engagement in a political movement that was the best cure for addiction amongst the people who Matulu Shakur and those folks in Lincoln Detox helped. So it wasn't the acupuncture. It wasn't the methadone that some people still took. It was the sense of community and giving them a purpose that was the critical condition to get them away from a life of addiction. So they'll let you keep the acupuncture, but they'll take away the politics. And that's what we're seeing today. You know, the overdose prevention site in New York seems to be doing very well. They have acupuncture. They have many alumni of the Matula Shakur movement there. And I think it's a good example of the health focus. But we would literally need 100 overdose prevention centers to supervise every injection of fentanyl in Baltimore City. So you have to be realistic with folks and like OPS is part of the solution. It's not the solution. The solution is empowering the community to do forms of prevention in terms of creating jobless job programs, creating community programs that reflect a cultural perspective of giving people a meaning to their lives that gives them something to live for that's better than the fentanyl molecule or the methadone molecule. And that is seen as very frustrating because a traditional Eurocentric progressive 
academic space has no space in it for that spiritual context. And and what it sounds like is, yeah, it'd be great if we got rid of racism, but we can't. So the best thing we can do is methadone. And community saying, that's not acceptable to me. And, mm-hmm. and instead of saying, hmm, I wonder why, people are saying, you don't get it. You haven't read the research. Trust me. And that's not acceptable. And let's talk about that. The one of the one of the points that's often brought up in the research is Portugal has a successful model, and I think you have a pretty interesting way of dealing with with this model as it tries to get mapped into Baltimore and into Maryland. Talk about that for a second, and then we're going to turn and go the other. We're going to get past the problem a little bit and start talking about what you see as the alternative. Yeah. So again, it's part of the. Um, the playbook. Part of the playbook is they say there are no solutions, but we have this magical example, and they brought to Portugal. Portugal had a problem with overdose and heroin in the 90s. They basically were just coming out of like a, a dictatorship. So this, uh, you know, a Portugal was like, look, we'll decriminalize the possession of heroin. Then you'll get to go to a uh, basically a, a, a deferral court. They don't call it drug court, but it's kind of like a drug court in that they do have the possibility of punishment. It is rarely utilized in Portugal, but they basically connect you to more of a social worker type situation where they say, do you need resources? Do you need help? Uh, but they don't really mandate it. And they expanded their treatment infrastructure in Portugal. And again, Portugal had very good results dealing with decreasing overdoses from heroin in the 90s and aughts with this approach. But in Portugal today, they have rolled back some of their investments in treatment. And fentanyl is a different animal when it comes to the overdose reality and the nature of addiction. Fentanyl is obviously synthetic. Some people say that um, Suboxone does not work nearly as well with fentanyl addiction. Does not work. Methadone may not work as well. Um, it's still probably the best thing we have, but it's just not the same. And, you know, people are seeing more chaotic addiction in the streets of Portugal. They're seeing more overdose in Portugal. In Portugal, public health officials have come out and said, whatever we have today, it is not a model. But many people are still using the Portugal model because it's a good talking point. And they can cherry pick the data and say, well, everybody has hiccups. It's still an evidence-based best practice when even people in Portugal are like, we got to rethink this, right? Um, so that, I think, is a good example. And again, Portugal is not America. <laughs> Portugal has some people from the African diaspora from like Brazil and the Portuguese colonies in Africa. But they, they're not a society that founded on anti-blackness, slavery, and genocide of natives like we are. So if you bring Portugal to America, who has any belief that they aren't going to use those punitive components of their system more here against black folks? Who has any belief that it will not look more like drug courts, which have been touted as a revolutionary replacement for uh, incarceration? But these drug court probation models basically string you along and basically make you do your analysis constantly and basically make you be lectured at constantly to the point where you can't even work. And some people are like, just throw me in jail. Just throw me in jail because this drug court stuff, I can't take it anymore. <clears throat> and you're basically bringing a Portuguese drug court to America, expecting it to act like it did in Portugal. That doesn't make any sense. And, and in the drug courts, as you point out in the report, we see that they're sending people to the nonprofits and the universities and that it is part of the money making scheme of treating of treating addiction as something that these organizations make their money on, as opposed to communities which, you know, 
thrive and make life out of it. I want to turn to the alternative here and and, and see what and start to hear you describe the alternative framework about how communities most directly impacted by the war on drugs, deindustrialization, white supremacy, and anti-blackness can address the problems that stem from addiction. We're, you know, you're, you were talking about hope earlier, and we've talked a lot about what the problem is. So let's start to turn the corner here and talk about what you see as the alternative framework to that. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem is there's not going to be one clean solution. There's no silver bullet. It's going to be investment because, you know, there's like a unspoken battle and some people are trying to be emissaries between the warring camps and that's between 12 step recovery and harm reduction. And the reality is, again, 12 step is at its core, like white evangelical theory from white folks in Ohio in the thirties. It is not built to be liberatory for people suffering from systemic oppression. These notions of powerlessness can be easily or reify very problematic power relationships both in 12-step and in the world. Um, but like I said, it is spiritual, it is communal, and it is free. So in that world, black and brown people have used this larger 12-step framework now trying to take the best pieces of it to do their own version of liberatory recovery work that oftentimes progressives and academics can't see because they're so blinded by I think the very clear limitations of the 12-step framework as it came down from the white folks in the 30s. So the reality is there are black folks doing different versions of recovery halfway houses that we've never studied them. Most people don't even talk to them. We don't even know they exist. And part of that is the black community's reticence to think about addiction um, beyond just the turn to Jesus and get saved type of mentality. But they're, they're doing interesting blending of pieces of harm reduction and obviously 12-step stuff, you know? So some people are like, I'm not going to stop you from smoking weed, but can you at least buy it from the dispensary? Can you smoke less, right? And so it's like, I'm not going to kick you out for smoking. And not all 12-step places work that way. Some people do kick you out for using your prescription drugs, you know? But, but that complexity and heterogeneity, you only understand it when you immerse yourself in seeing that space. So it's about investing in an expansion of liberatory, grassroots, community accountable addiction treatment across the spectrum, which will include methadone, which will include suboxone, which will include recovery, but all of it, all of it should be tied to a larger community investment agenda, a larger economic agenda, and a liberatory, culturally conscious agenda. So you shouldn't have, like, you know, I joke about suboxone, but a, a positive outcome for suboxone is like, you know, you can get the film strips of Suboxone mailed to your house. It's like, if you're just in your house eating Suboxone, playing video games, you're not overdosing, that's a victory in the public health perspective. That is not a victory in the communal perspective. Because mm -hmm. that person isn't engaging community, restoring community, restoring themselves, they're just not overdosing. Not overdosing is not our vista of liberation. You know, so when you prioritize overdose numbers as the core metric of success, you ignore everything else about addiction in terms of the suffering, in terms of the community suffering, in terms of just the basic parts of what it means to be human. You limit it all down to one biological factor that you can measure. Did you die of overdose? And that obscures literally everything else about people's experiences of recovery, people's experiences of relapse, people's experience of social support, which many people say can be more robust in 12-step than in harm reduction not inherently that way 
but that's kind of how the space has felt to many people. Um, and it all has to be tied to legitimate working with the community organizations that many people see as part of the problem in the drug policy space, which are homeowners, churches, community associations. You know, so they've experienced a lot of NIMBYism around methadone clinics and treatment facilities, and they perceive folks as only caring about their property values. And I think some of that's legitimate, absolutely true. But I think even those people are like, well, if you could show me this facility is committed to really integrating these people back into community, making them productive parts of the community, then I wouldn't be so against it. But you don't seem to have that as a priority. So I don't think you're going to do the services in a way that actually reintegrates people. Um, you know, so it's just one of those things where the desire to eliminate overdose is so great. What people tend to do is give money to the people who have the capacity to scale up immediately. And so that kind of creates this cookie cutter, give money to the people who already have the infrastructure, i.e. the big nonprofits mentality. And they're like, well, it's an emergency. We get it. We would love to do that other stuff, but it's an emergency. So we got to do this. And the problem is they say that every time. <laughs> they, say, they say that every time, and then those folks who are in the nonprofit industrial complex, especially related to this, make campaign donations yeah. uh, because they are making money from the government off of doing this treatment in a lot of cases. Or, or right? even if it's not donations, it's who they know. Yep. They think the same way. They're part of the same social circles. They went to the same schools. They believe the same things. So. It's, it's kind of a group sync mentality sometimes where it's like, it's not some evil cabal of people trying to control you. It's just all they know, it's common sense to them. And, and it does make sense for them, right? It makes sense for the people who are providers right now. And look, for the people who are providers right now, they're like, look, we're saving lives. We're, we're stopping people from dying and you know, you need to invest in that. But as you say, it's not, it's not doing the repair of people or community uh, in a way that is that is really liberatory. And in the paper, you advocate for reparations as a key element of the solution, but you take some time to define reparation and you explain, and I'm quoting here, the definition of reparations presented by the interview subjects did not center on repairing the divide between oppressed and oppressor by granting the oppressed increased access to existing political and social service structure infrastructure, but instead on using public investment to build up the infrastructural capacity of the oppressed so they were no longer dependent on the goodwill of the oppressor for their survival. I really love this definition. Can you talk about why this definition of reparations is important generally and then specifically in this context? Yeah, it was inspired by a lot of things, partially inspired by seeing the reparations platform of numerous candidates in the 2020 presidential election. And seeing reparations as we did from a pan-African liberationist perspective, it was jarring to see it become a mainstream talking point that people were willing to sign on to. So you look at their platforms and they're literally just giving money for existing institutions to serve black people more. So the beneficiaries of those investments are existing institutions, not black people. Because reparations to me is give the black folks the money, let them pick what they want to do with it. Um, and, and it was just so obvious to me and so not obvious that it was clear it was emotional. Because if we can bring black folks into the existing institutions, first of all, if I'm if I'm a, a working class, white, middle class American, it's like they work for me. So we gotta give them what works. So what works for me, it's just what works, period. 
and but it's also emotional. It's like I want to believe that America does not need to be fundamentally changed for it to be just. So the idea that we can just integrate people into existing infrastructure as the solution means I don't have to deal with the moral quandary that oppression, slavery, war on drugs forestalled the an entire civilization's right to self-determine their own methodologies of development in this country. And true repair means that they need, you need to give them the space to do what they need to build upon what they have so they have what they need so that when they engage with the dominant institutions, it's from a position of strength, not a position of desperation. And I think that it requires you to believe that oppressed people can have and do build their own institutions, have their own methodologies and epistemologies and spiritual ontologies that you can't understand, that maybe you aren't equipped to study, that maybe you aren't equipped to be an expert on. And that is an affront to a certain type of person's belief that they as a good, smart person should and must know everything about the solutions to these problems. There's just some things that you're not going to know. Mm-hmm. And I get that it's hard to invest in that in terms of public money from our typical perspective. But then just say you're against reparations. It's fine to be like that. Well, I don't get it. It's not evidence-based. You can't get money. Just say that. Say you're against reparations. And I think part of it is we have to, begin, we have to draw hard lines to force the political conversations to begin to have the debates around investing in self-determination and sovereignty for our community. Because we have a lot of people claiming to be friends of our community, friends of reparations, friends of this perspective that are really enemies of this perspective because it's in their economic interest to be. But honestly, I don't think it's even material. I just think psychologically and spiritually, they can't bear the thought that what they do isn't the best thing possible. And so we just have to have the confrontation. And you've started having some of those conversations with the work that you've done on the cannabis bill. Can you talk about the way that you all have used reparation as part of the policy solution so far um, with the cannabis with the cannabis bill? And then, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll ask. That. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and in terms of what's unique about Maryland, first of all, we have, I think, the only uh, large scale um, community reinvestment mechanism where the money is not controlled by a Democratic Party leadership or party leadership. So the controlling, um, at least the way we designed it, is that 35% of all tax revenue for the state of Maryland goes into a fund, the Community Reinvestment Repair Fund. That is then chopped up based upon each locality, each um, county, or in Baltimore City's case, a city's contribution to overall cannabis possession arrest over like a 10-year period. Um, so Baltimore City gets the bulk of it, I think like 30%, I think like 18% goes to Baltimore County, I think like 12% goes to PG. Um, but it's up to that locality to pass an ordinance of the city council or county council about who holds the money and what they do with the money. And that was very intentional because other states have far bigger funds than Maryland's, but they had the power centralized in the state capital from political appointees from Democratic Party leadership and it basically became another grant program you needed evidence, $100,000 academic evaluation of your programming to show that it did evidence-based best practices and three years of a card uh, uh, of all the financial statements to even apply for the reparations fund. I'm like, well, if it's reparations, these folks may have been in jail. They're not going to have all that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. They also use poverty, not race, as the metric of who gets money. So in Illinois, you have 99% white towns getting money from their version of the reparations fund. 
um, because of the poverty metrics. So we were very adamant about leaving it under local control. But in Baltimore, we took it a step further because we had the city council pass an ordinance that creates a reparations commission where the appointees are appointed by city council people to basically study the harm of the war on drugs and determine what investments will be reparative of the harm of the war on drugs. And that's really important because in most places, the executive controls these commissions. And we were very adamant that the executive should not control this commission because the executive, you know, it's a multi-million dollar effort to run for mayor in the city. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of people who have sway over you. You just know a lot of people who are tied to big institutions. But a city council person, that's a few thousand votes. That's, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars. If you have 50 people in your neighborhood who trust you, that city council person has to really care what you think. So it's, it's nothing about city council people that makes them inherently better at this than anyone else. It's just they are more susceptible to bottom-up democratic pressure than any uh -huh. other person in this ecosystem who could be the decision-making point. And ultimately, that's what community control. You can only offer infrastructure for community to manifest their power in most effective ways. So we did that in Baltimore City. PG actually passed a very similar bill to us. And we're going to try to get similar bills passed in Baltimore County and um, Montgomery County. And then that becomes the vehicle for funding uh, and developing these community institutions that help in the fight against addiction. Absolutely. Um, we also have one of the lowest cannabis tax rates in the country. So there should be, and I would like that to be much higher. Uh, but, so, but also we're looking at other sources of revenue. We're looking at progressive taxation when it comes to increasing income tax, taxing the rich more, um, capital gains tax, we're looking at the opioid settlement money. But people always say, you know, reparations, who gets it? How do we actually manifest it? So our point is like, you have to build the political infrastructure and you have to start at scale. So you have to start handling a few million dollars a year, but you don't stop there because that's not gonna meet the need. So whether it's opioid settlement money, progressive taxation money, you can build up to $5 million a year, $10 million a year, but you have to build the infrastructure, do the work it takes to bring dissenting people together to actually come to some sort of consensus on ways to invest and fight politically to protect those institutions from co-option and from the attacks that are going to come from the establishment. And that doesn't mean they're perfect. It doesn't mean they're going to make perfect decisions, but it right. means that it's a legitimate vehicle. It's political artillery. You know, um, Lawrence of Arabia, it's one of my favorite movies because it talks about self-determination. The Arabs need artillery and they keep asking the British because they're fighting the Turks. And the British are like, yeah, yeah, sure. But behind their back, they say, well, we give them artillery. We've made them independent. So we can't give them artillery. That's kind of how the democratic establishment is with community controlled infrastructure for our people. They always say they will do it. But if they ever gave it to us, we could turn it on them. So they're very, very reticent about us actually controlling the artillery because they don't know who we'll use it against, right? So I, I, I think this is legitimately the type of way you have to think about this work. Like you're fighting to carve out as much freedom. And it's a battle. It's a battle not just in terms of because this is a few million dollars a year. The fifth and corporations have to scale the violence. We know that. But it is the beginnings of autonomous community control, political artillery. Uh -huh. And when you have that, then you have, you know, a deterrent. You have, you're in the fight. And that doesn't mean it's perfect. That doesn't mean it's always going to do what you want.
but the value of having these locally controlled political artilleries, I think, have been lost so deeply because we want them to be perfect. We want them to be pure. We want all power to be cleansed of any negativisms and anxieties we have. That's just not how power works. Yeah, and I have this conversation with people a lot where they say, like, well, I want to do the version of this that is not susceptible, the version of this policy that is not susceptible to politics or money. And it's like, well, that's that's not a policy that is going to be able to have any traction, because if if you want to avoid politics and money, you're going to get crushed by politics and money, you know, and, and and I think what I like about the framework that you all have here is that you've created a container uh, for funds to be diverted, that the community can have the best form of control that they can have over so that they can fund their solutions and not the solutions that Hopkins or the foundations or the grant givers fund. You know, it is, it, it's like, a, it feels like you all have created a community mechanism to end run the nonprofit industrial complex in this case. Uh, and it's like you say, it's new and it has a couple million dollars in it, but there's a mechanism and a structure in place that can grow and other revenue streams can go into it and it can fund all sorts of projects like the ones that you're talking about that have a liberatory framework and are aiming to um, aiming to be from the community as opposed to imposed on the community. Yeah, and it's one of many. So we have the Baltimore City Children and Youth Fund. We have B-City in West Baltimore, you know, doing investments in community. We have the work that folks like collectively are doing, and we have just um, many other things like this happening. And I think that's where that's where the hope comes in. It's not about one thing fixing it. It's about many different types of political institutions, money holding intermediary institutions that can actually get public money to the ground in a liberatory fashion. When you begin to string three, four, five of those together, that's when you begin to have a real ecosystem. And I think that that's when you can really see change, but it's going to mean building each one individually and networking them together. And it, that's what it's going to take. But I think it's so abstract that people haven't been presented with that possibility because it feels so abstract. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense. But I think I think you're starting to put it into concrete terms that make sense and sound like policy, uh, sound like you have a policy that goes with that framework. And I think that we'll, we'll turn now to this Maryland Matters commentary that you wrote in um, November of 2022, where you're talking about some of the policy. There you say, even in places championed by harm reduction advocates, there was a failure to invest in grassroots addiction service uh, in a grassroots addiction service ecosystem before drug decriminalization, leading to community backlash and limiting the effectiveness of these programs. Infe investing in a community-controlled addiction treatment infrastructure is not only a prerequisite to effective implementation of drug decriminalization, but it is necessary to garner the political support from the Black community needed to pass the harm reduction legislation. I think that what I really love about the way that you write this here is that you're saying that those community control structures must happen before we get to the, the specifics of the drug policy conversation, as I read it. Is that, is that a fair reading of that? I think it can happen at the same time. But this is largely about Oregon. So many people know Oregon decriminalized many so-called hard drugs um, in 2000. Um, it's a ballot initiative 110, I believe. And they had to go back and modify it a few years later, actually taking some money from cannabis legalization funds to begin to invest in the addiction treatment infrastructure. Um, because 
people's experiences of what was happening with drug addiction had changed so drastically. Part of that's the pandemic, part of that's fentanyl hitting Oregon later than some other places. Um, but the reality is, is that even advocates of the policy did not feel that that was a sort of comprehensive investment in community infrastructure, because you are trying to defer people from prison to treatment. And that means you need to have treatment beds available. So if you're going to do a decrim policy that takes people away from prison, and again, voluntarily, not involuntarily, but voluntarily to treatment, which again, Joe Biden loves to say, will force them into treatment. That's not good. You got to have the treatment, not just treatment beds, but treatment from the types of people who can be effective at the population coming to them. The population coming to them is very diverse. You know, it could be doctors suffering from addiction. It could be, you know, very, very religious people. It could be very, very politically radical people. And that, that's difficult because that means you need to have a diversity of treatment providers who can work with different types of people. But that's the type of forethought and specificity you need on the front end. So, you know, that doesn't mean that like the, the self-determined recovery that does African-centered treatment and spoken word poetry, it's not gonna be for everybody. But I want them to have more bids. I want them to be able to train more people to do the type of things they do that are effective. Because if it, the jail pop, if the addiction population like things like the jail population, which we know it does, more people are gonna benefit from that than many of the methodologies being dominant in the sector right now. Right, so it's not about universalizing a particular perspective because some people don't want all that. You know, some people like like the more hardcore, rigorous boot camp type stuff that works for some people. Um, but we have a lot of that in space, and we don't have a lot of the investments in spiritual technologies outside of traditional Christian twelve step. And I think that's again something that the progressives aren't good at because they're just skeptical many of them of spirituality and religion. Full stop. And the reality is that many of the most effective treatment providers in this space historically for the black community have been religious treatment providers. Um, and, and so that's just another mean that they have the secret sauce just because they say, Jesus, you know, you should evaluate it. You should see what works and be rigorous and, and figure out what methodologies work specifically. But that means you need to have an infrastructure. You got to have evaluators. You got to have trainers. You got to have trainings. You got to have buildings. You gotta help people with their paperwork. You gotta get people certified. You gotta get build up a peer treatment ecosystem. Um, the, the, the peer system of addiction treatment is one of the most, I think, effective non-traditional academic certification systems in providing people's experience through treatment. Doesn't mean all peers are good. Some of the peers are like some of the meanest people on the planet when it comes to addiction. Cause they're like, this worked for me to save my life. You gotta do it just the way I did it. Mm -hmm. it's complicated. It's difficult, but you need to be serious about the workforce training and the infrastructure development, because when you do a system like DCRIM saying you're going to offer treatment and the treatment either doesn't exist or it's all one thing, whatever that one thing is, even if it's the most evidence-based whatever, you're going to have a problem. And Oregon is now facing the potential that um, people are potentially going to vote um, to rescind that DCRIM policy. And again, you know, people in Oregon are like, you know, this is BS, this is conservative, this is Republicans, and like, I'm sure it's some of that. But it's also a lot of working class people that's like, I don't like the results. Mm -hmm. And I think having a legitimate conversation with them, listening to them and taking their feedback seriously is important. Yeah, no, I, and I think, I mean, what I really like about your approach to this is it has, it has a level of abstraction and a level of theory behind it, but it also has a clear and concrete set of policy recommendations and a clear way to implement it. It's not, 
simply uh, abstraction, nor is it simply policy. It is a combination of the two of those into a framework that I think is really uh, is really inspiring to think about. And I'm excited next week to talk about what that framework looks like in other spaces as well. I want to ask um, two quick questions about the politics of this. Um, so wh what are the political challenges that you face in going forward with this type of approach in, in Maryland politics right now? I mean, I'll start with the most proximal challenge. And I think it's um, our community has been deeply traumatized by drugs. So many people, I mean, I don't think there's ever been a full accounting of just what crack was to the black community. Because it wasn't just addiction. We've dealt with addiction at least since the 70s, you know, the heroin epidemics from people coming back from Vietnam. Um, you know, crack uniquely because people were able to dose multiple times per day. It was an upper. So people spent more money on crack than they did with heroin because they were able to. It's just the nature of the drug biologically. But that meant that there was a huge pressure for like property crime. That means that there was huge pressure to like people using in houses, people selling in houses, people getting evicted, people getting kicked out of public housing, people getting their houses raided by police. And so people would blame the addict because they were like, how could you love that drug more than our family? And, and just that that shredding of the social fabric of reciprocal responsibility. I don't think we've ever fully had the space as a black community to deal with that. We don't have many spaces that are just us to even talk about it. Um, and so people are just real reticent to talk about addiction and drugs because it's like that's private. And, and part of that's conservative, but part of that's like even admitting to using drugs or having family that uses drugs, is that going to get the cops called on us? Is that going to get child protective services called on me? So even that conservative nature is seen as a character flaw by some of the drug policy advocates. Like, no, it is literally survival for us. It's literally survival for us. So we need safe spaces where we know that that's collateral consequences are not on the table to begin to talk about the reality of just how traumatic addiction has been for us. Because um, we need to be able to talk about the complexity of addiction um, and the reality of, yeah, you know, anything that increases addiction is dangerous. I don't think decrim necessarily does that. I think data is people don't use drugs out of the way. They wasn't deterred by going to jail anyway. But people need to, that's not enough. Because people's like, yeah, you say that, but mm -mm. So you need to build like, okay, what if I do some economic investments? What if I do some treatment? What if I do that and I do decrim? Because you don't want people going to jail, do you? And, and some people's like, yeah, I do want them to go to jail. <laughs> because they might get clean in jail. And it's like, okay, let's talk more about that. Do they come out more traumatized? Do they come out better? And if they do come out better, because some people do, is that because of jail or that's because of the Muslims that were in jail? Do, do, do we need to send them to jail for the Muslims to get a hold of them? It's like, I don't think so, right? They were ready. They were ready to get clean. And jail was just a catalyst. We don't need jail to be the catalyst if we have other catalysts, right? But you got to actually treat people seriously. Like, I'm a debater. Like, I was trained that there are no bad debate judges, only debaters that don't adapt to their judges. So that's how I see the Black community. Some of them are more conservative. They have legitimate concerns, and it's my job to adapt. That's not how drug policy advocates see it. <laughs> they see it as, you know, my friend died. These people don't care that my friends died. That's real fucked up. And I, I get that abstractly, you know, as someone who's experienced addiction in their family. Like, I, I get it abstractly, but they see people die every day. It's real traumatic. I can only speak to political effectiveness. This state is 30% Black. This bill is not going to pass. <laughs> it's just not going to until we as the black community have the space to figure out how we relate to this issue with black people speaking to us in a way that we can understand and hear it. Um, 
what you say, you know, other political issues. The, the other political issue is just the um, nonprofit industrial complex, the, the liberal academic abstraction around drug policy. You know, the way they talk about it is if it's just um, us versus them. And all the people are on the wrong side of science, they're on the wrong side of morality, if they don't support OPS, if they don't support decrim. They've turned it into like, you know, this very simplistic culture war issue. Um, and I get it. It's just, it's just not persuasive to a lot of black folks. It's just so complex and nuanced that it doesn't fit within that culture war framework. It's not, it's not quite this. I mean, even with abortion, like, you know, there's very complex nuanced feelings on all these issues. Um, but, but even in terms of just like pure political power, that isn't like a hardcore affluent base of people that are going to drive this issue home the way they do with abortion. Mm -hmm. Like this is not an issue. Many people want to stick their neck on. They don't feel the need to. So thinking you're going to pass this the way they did abortion, or thinking you're going to pass this the way they did, um, other drug policy reforms that are more technocratic and more ticky tacky, neither of those going to work. And I think that's part of the issue is that people are trying to make this the next abortion issue or they're falling back on their centrist DNA to make it like a centrist issue. And neither of those are going to work, but you're going to have to do it the hard way in this state. And, and right now that means doing it via, you know, via the hard conversations, via the hard work of policy, being the hard work of community organizing. Um, what I'm going to, I want to ask a question here about specific legislation. Is there any specific legislation in 2024 related to any of this that you're following and that people should pay attention to? The decrim coalition is starting back up. I believe they're going to try to introduce a bill for statewide opioid decriminalization. Um, the governor hasn't come out on it. I think people are not necessarily expecting it to pass this year. The one thing I want to ask people to focus on if you're in Baltimore City is Baltimore City carved itself out of the statewide opioid settlement. So there were lawsuits against opioid distributors all over the country. Uh, Maryland did a big settlement, uh, I think a year ago. Baltimore City had an independent lawsuit because they were like, we got hit harder. Um, we have a lot of the people from other places in the state come to Baltimore for treatment. We need more money. And that that's scheduled to go to trial in August. I was shocked. I would be shocked if it actually went to trial. If I were Brandon, I would tell my legal team to settle before the election so I could have a victory before the election. The election's in May. So I expect this settlement to come down sometime this year. And the question is, where's the money go? So that's why I've been talking about all this stuff, because that's really, I think, a tranche of money that is explicitly designed to go to addiction treatment. And again, that's going to be a battle between the recovery folks and the 12-step folks for that money. And there needs to be people who are like, I see both sides. First of all, neither you getting all of it, because some of it has to go upstream to prevention and investments in community. And that does not mean just say no. That does not mean Jesus will keep you away from drugs. That means actually investing in community capacity to talk about harm reduction from a Black perspective, which might mean if you're going to smoke, smoke from a dispensary, street weed is different. That's not a conspiracy theory. They're spraying it with THC concentrate, which is way, way, way more concentrated than any weed you're used to. So we're seeing people smoke weed and having effects we've never seen before. And some people think that's from being laced with fentanyl. Some of it might be laced with fentanyl, but that doesn't really seem to be the main cause of it. It's the THC concentrate being sprayed onto it. So actually like talking about it and talking through it to be like, mm -hmm. yeah, back in the day, we used to say one shot and you'd be dead. That really wasn't true with heroin. That is kind of true with fentanyl. 
Yeah. And it's like, sorry, we lied to you, but please trust us this time. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not easy. It's difficult, but it has to happen. And it has to happen in a way it's community power and community control. And we have to figure out what we can do to actually push together in this fight. Um, Cause it's just the need is so great. Again, Baltimore being one of the biggest um, places of overdose deaths, it's not surprising. We've been a heroin town since forever being a port city. But, you know, the drug supply is very polluted now. And unfortunately, the drivers of addiction are not going away in the city. Mm-hmm. We have to figure out what we can do to keep people alive. That includes overdose prevention sites. That bill may have some traction. So it's a, it's a pilot bill that basically is needing the city of Baltimore and health departments to give the green light to try a pilot in Baltimore City. It's probably it's going to be the pilot place. The mayor supports it. The mayor's up for re-election. He, he may or may not be reelected. Uh, that one could pass, but then it's a question of getting the pilot actually going. So then you have to deal with the zoning, you have to deal with the community backlashing against OPS potentially. So I think it's really important for overdose prevention sites, which are places where people can safely consume um, street drugs and be monitored for overdose and be able to kept alive if they do overdose with naloxone to stress the wellness component of the overdose prevention center. It doesn't have to be treatment, but wellness treating wounds, nutrition, care, like the wellness component doesn't have to be pushing people to treatment, you know, offer it, but don't sell it as what it ain't. It's not about pushing people into treatment, it's about keeping people alive and keeping them healthy. Like really sell that to community and don't apologize for being an OPS, you know, say what you are, say why you're doing it, explain what the need is, and but really push the wellness component to keep people not just alive, but try to get them well. We don't want to see people just living through chaotic addiction. We want folks to get well, however that happens. Excellent. How can how can Lawrence? How can folks get involved and support your work on these issues and follow you on the socials and all that? So uh, our website is lbsbaltimore.com. So that's .com because we're getting we're not a nonprofit. Um, so um, and sign up for our email list, sir. Social media, we do it, but the algorithms really don't like political content. They hate drug content. So anything that we post about drug policies and get whacked in the algorithm. So email is the best way to keep up with us. We're doing op-eds. We're doing uh, YouTube videos, podcasts. Those things will go out via our email. That's probably the best way to keep up with us. Um, but also just community events. You know, we're at a bunch of community events. We're going to be having some more community conversations about drug policy, about violence prevention. Many of those have been downtown at Reginald F. Lewis. They may be down there. They may be at our um, office in Park Heights. Um, but yeah, but you know, in Annapolis, we're also doing a lot of work on a variety of issues. So we're going to have a separate podcast from the one that I'm going to be doing and bringing back in search of black power. It's more theoretical. It's more of a deep dive into some of these thoughts behind our stuff. Streets to the State House is another podcast we do led by Director of Public Policy, Dave on Love. He's talking more about the concrete nitty gritty impacts of Annapolis, but also the the deeper political reality of what's happening in Annapolis that impacts your life in, in, in Maryland, in Baltimore City. So follow us on LBS Baltimore on YouTube, because that's what the podcast is going to be. Wherever you get podcasts, Facebook, Instagram, it's um, LBS Baltimore on Instagram, Leads of a Beautiful Struggle on Facebook. Excellent. Thank you, Lawrence. We will put all of those links into the show notes, and we'll put the links uh, for the report that we talked about here and the Maryland Matters article as well. 
And then Lawrence is going to be joining us again next week as we um, have a similar conversation about how this framework works as it relates to violence, violence prevention, violence interruption, uh, and a lot of the other issues that are focused around that part of this discussion. So um, thank you all for tuning in to this today. I really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Uh, and follow Lawrence and LBS on the, on the socials and on the website. Um, and tune in as we do this again next week uh, and get another episode out and really, really start to understand the ideas uh, and theories behind this uh, and the work that good people are doing in the community to uh, challenge the structures of power that are um, disempowering communities around the state and the solutions that they have to offer. So thank you, Lawrence. I appreciate it today. Thank you all for watching. and I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you.